0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Bill Barnes. Bill is an educator who has written on the subject of integrating the spiritual into education. He has a blog called Joyful Ed, where he publishes his thoughts on the subject. I started the interview by asking Bill where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, usually when people ask me where did, I, where did I grow up, I usually said I haven't yet. <laughs> but um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia until I was 16, and then we moved to Michigan, where I spent my high school years. My wife and I then went to Boston for a couple years for jobs and for university, which I left because it wasn't really satisfying, and we went pioneering to Japan for 18 years we came back in 1998 and have been here ever since. My parents were um, very interested though I will say this. They were they were much inclined to get us involved with a lot of church activities and community activities. We were involved in a exchange program, so we had visitors in our home from
2: Japan and Germany
1: and Norway. So I got some kind of a flavor of of the world. We traveled some back and forth to california from from Pennsylvania, and my dad and mom also tried to get us you know to look at the at the wider world and not just the streets around us and to go to the mall and stuff like that. so I was quite i think privileged in that respect um, they didn 't really push us, but they just provided us a lot of opportunities to engage with uh, different kinds of people. One of the things that I really remember was. Uh, Our church, which was a Presbyterian church, was an all-white church. And there was a petition that was circulated around the community uh, church members. Would they be willing to allow black people into the church? And the only two people who signed that petition and said yes were the minister and my parents. So we were kind of targeted at that point. And not long afterwards, uh, not targeted in the sense of just, you know, uh, we were targeted in the sense that these people are suspicious, you know. They're they're likely to do crazy things. Then not long after that, my father got transferred, and we put our house up for sale. And believe it or not, uh, there was a delegation from the, the neighborhood to come and ask my father, would he sell to a black person? And my father said, I'll sell it to anyone who has the price. (laughs) <laughs> so that's kind, of, that's kind of my upbringing. Maybe, I think, more racially sensitive to a lot of things than some white kids would, would be. And um, I probably was behind my interests when I went to college and got a degree in racial and ethnic studies. Met some marvelous people from different cultures and backgrounds.
0: And what were your interests growing up?
1: My interests mostly were sports. Mm-hmm. You know, Basketball, baseball some football. I like to read a lot of all different varieties and spend a lot of time outdoors. I played a lot of sports. I really did. So um, any opportunity we could, we, we had a baseball game going or a pickup basketball game going, uh, football, something like that. Um, that was really where I channeled my energy.
0: So what did you do after high school?
1: After high school, um I went to um Western Michigan University at that point we' in Michigan and was studying sociology and getting through my general course but this was the nineteen sixty eight I graduated from high school, so I dated myself there but along about sixty nine or so I was pretty fed up with college so and there was you know a lot of as you know civil rights and um, social action, so I got very involved in that managed to helped start a riot at my university and, uh, you know, battled the police in the streets the whole whole bit, you know, into drugs and things like that. But out of that came a real search for something greater than this, because I felt that as as necessary and as good as this protest movement was in trying to redress these social issues, it didn't seem to be satisfying from that ferment, I'll call it, that Uh, grew an interest in higher spiritual things, and I found the Baha'i Faith, and I fell in love with it immediately. Went back to school two or three times, actually. Uh, I was never a great student um, in in a strict academic sense. Eventually got my degree in history, I think, and then uh, the uh, graduate degree in um, another form of history. So, with communications involved, um, very involved, very much um, fell in love with the writings of theorists of the 1960s called Marshall McLuhan. Still go back to him for a lot of uh, inspiration and things. But. My formal education is, um, you know, the standard one, but I think the education, the extracurricular education that was going on with the, the study of, you know, the, the social movements and doing all that, and just getting involved in
2: Things that I really felt
1: were, you know, much closer to my heart, independently of any classes I were taking. That that I felt was a, a much more valuable component of my education than any class work that I, I got. I, I really was not a good student, and I was quite a pain in the, in the you know what in high school. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about how you how you heard about the Baha'i faith and how it led you to. Taking it seriously and and ultimately committing to it.
1: Well, I heard about the Baha'i Faith. Actually, the first time I ever heard about it, I figured this out in retrospect, was when I was 14 years old, and I was uh, watching a TV program, and a man by the name of Vic Damone was on. He mentioned that he had just joined this faith. Now, at that point, I didn't remember that, but I remember, recalled it later when I um in In the college, when I first heard about the faith, and then I first heard about it there, actually, in the midst of a, um uh maybe my family and kids won't want me to say this, but in the midst of a drug trip, somebody said that one of their friends had become Baha'i, and they felt that this was really something that was much more enlightening than the drugs that we were we were taking um so I kind of filed that one away um and then you know continued with the protest and the political activities and things and then suddenly it all as i felt just seemed empty and literally at that moment uh, one of my roommates came back we were in an apartment came back and said that there's he just seen this poster at the university saying
2: for those of you beyond drugs
1: so i said okay um, that sounds like what i want to be so i went and it was what's called a bahai fireside and uh, the man who was speaking was very eloquent and Um, got me very, very interested. I I had an immediate attraction to it, very deep, and that has never left. And just whatever I read and whatever people told me about it, it just seemed to make so much sense and also seemed to be the key to a lot of social problems and uh, other kinds of things that were going on in society. And I felt,
2: I really need to know this.
1: And it was coming from what they called a spiritual perspective. So I had to find out what that meant for me in terms of the human soul and the development of the spiritual development of the the spirit. So it's been a long now 40-year search to find, you know, more and better answers and more comprehensive answers to really what are the same questions, you know, who are you and what are you doing here and is your life making a difference? And with every passing year, you have to kind of re-ask that same question and and find an answer for that year or that decade or whatever, and, and, and keep going you know, hopefully toward a, a stronger integration of the, of the light of, of the Baha'i faith for me or for God for you know anybody else. Um, I don't believe that the faith has a monopoly of the truth, but I think it certainly has the most comprehensive approach to the problems that are besetting all of us today and gives one you know a purpose and a direction in one's life that um is really in tune with the challenges that are also to be met and gives you not only a plan but the spiritual energy and the moral motivation to arise and and go do something about it so i find that all in the faith and um so far i still i still find it on a daily basis so um i've stayed with it and couldn't think of myself being anything else
0: After you discovered the Baha'i Faith, how did it redirect where you were heading in life?
1: It redirected it in the sense of uh, a couple of things. First, it gave me another dimension to the experience that I was getting. As I was saying, I was very involved in the political activism and trying to redress social injustices and getting racial harmony established it seemed to me that the the strategies and the tactics and the philosophies about that were
3: really adding
1: to the problem in some way that I couldn't quite figure out. What the Baha'i Faith gave me was not not a redirection to that, but just a, a wider perspective from, you know, this is going to take, you know, a transformation of the heart. It's going to take, you know, new kind of social institutions that will bring people together in a different way. So it it gave me that added that added dimension, which I'm calling spiritual, um, as opposed to just the human and the natural, that opened my eyes to a, a much wider, much wider universe.
2: On a, on a
1: personal level, what it probably made me do was travel more and get involved. As I said, I, I went to Japan for 18 years with my wife and my three kids. My three daughters were born were born there. And, um, we traveled. I've traveled to, to different countries and just tried to imbibe the the positive things of those cultures that I have been privileged to visit or or live within and also share the ideals um, of the Baha'i faith, of one God, one essential religion, that humanity is one, and really the challenges that we're facing as a species are common to all of us. There is no no Baha'i solution independent of a human solution and, and vice versa. You know, it gave me a motivation to get out more into the world, and it gave me a perspective on on my life and where humanity should be going that I don't think I would have found anywhere. I've, I've checked, and this seems to me the best answer for me.
0: Why did you travel to Japan, and what did you do there?
1: Um, we traveled to Japan um, almost by accident. My wife and I wanted to be what's called a Baha'i pioneer, which is that you travel to another country and you learn to live with those people. You're not supported by the Baha'i faith for the ideals of peace and unity and also contribute to the advancement of that society. So it's it's different than a missionary in that sense, but essentially you're you're trying to uh, promote the ideals of of the Baha'i faith. We wanted to go to China. We had put in our application to do that, they were excited that we were going to China. This was the early 70s, and you know, not many people were going. But um, the National Baha'i Office called us and said, we know you want to go to China, but an opportunity has opened up in Japan. Would you consider Japan? Uh, it's the Orient, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> We thought about it for a day, and we said, oh, sure, why not? Let's go. So we did. So we packed up and we went. Um, I guess the most um, important thing that we did there was my wife was instrumental in founding A small private school called the the Daystar International School. She did that with a local Baha'i there, and I joined two or three years later when enough students and enough income had been generated to handle one more salary. So we did that for about nine years or so, and we were very free to do pretty much what we wanted Um, in terms of the curriculum and design. We got some help from some local um, authorities who provided us with a a wonderful facility in the middle of this 22-acre natural preserve. So we were pretty much surrounded by gorgeous nature. We had no educational authorities looking over our shoulders. Japan is very rigid in its its educational philosophy, and that has good aspects, but um, it tends to generate a lot of dropouts. So we were getting some of those, and all the kids some international families who lived in the area were also looking for a, uh, an international school. So we had kids from all, all over the Ukraine, Bangladesh, Mexico, Canada, Australia, uh, Nigeria, I think, something like that. It was quite a quite an eclectic mix there, even though it never got very big. But it was it's quite an exciting time to really put together a what we call really a spiritual based education. Which was—it's different than religion. You know, you're, you're trying to empower people to to bring out the qualities within themselves and to express them in acts of service and get the kids you know, involved in that kind of, of thinking, rather than just my career and you know what what you know, school is going to give to me. You have to have a reciprocal action there. What are you going to give to the school and to the community? So we developed the curriculum and we're able to do it for. She was able to do it for about 12 years. As I said, I I joined about three years later, so I did it for nine. Then the Japanese economy kind of went, took a real steep downturn, so we were dependent on the school for our visa, and when the school could no longer support us, we had to pack up and find someplace else to live, and so uh, at that point, the only place that we could find was um,
2: here in the States,
1: so we came back setup shop in, in Tucson, Arizona.
0: <laughs> now, why Tucson, Arizona?
1: That's where my mom lived. That was about the only place in the world that we we knew we had a. We had given everything that we had pretty much to the school. The salaries were, you know, they couldn't be great because the school was small. So we had to find you know, some place to to put our three kids, and make sure the three kids had a place. There was no good opportunity in the the world that we could find. We checked you know, schools and things like that, but it was mid-year and uh, positions were were filled. We we couldn't stay in Japan because at that point we didn't have a valid visa to stay. It was pretty much, you know, this is it. So we went to Tucson and she took us in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do after you guys got settled into Tucson?
1: Well, um... A lot of grieving at first because, you know, to lose your pioneer post after 18 years, it was it, pretty sad. But, well, we got the kids into schools and we looked around for work and just, you know, we had spent 18 years in Japan. So our, our work record for this country wasn't good. So people were, were not really willing. We were old enough so that so that was a strike against us at that point also. We, we, we couldn't get on a career track. We've done a lot of different kinds of things last year, for example, I worked for the census. That was a good gig. you know I like I like doing that, but
0: you meet a lot uh, of people
1: Yeah, you <laughs> met a lot of people um and it was a lot of travel, which I like you know, get in the car and just you know go someplace and try to interview somebody and um, i was a I was a crew leader, so I got to do a lot of the organizational work. And, but now I'm concentrating um, a lot of my time on
2: just writing,
1: which I've loved to do, and been fortunate to have um, several dozen articles published here and there. Trying to, you know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the education blog that I write, but I, I do that. I've got a good response from that.
0: Tell me about what you've published.
1: Mostly things on on education. I have an article, for example, in the Baha'i World of. A few years ago, for four or five years, I did um, a daily, or not daily, but a regular column on education for Herald of the South, magazine um, out of Australia, some of the Association for Baha'i Studies journals have, have published, or um, called the Irfan Colloquia, which is a, a fellow in the organization that has published a couple of the talks and the papers that I've presented to them mostly in in that area of education and the investigation of the application of educational ideas to society and to really developing what I'm calling a spiritual model of education, based somewhat on what we did there with the Daystar School in Japan, but trying to find a a spiritual dimension to things, which put us in touch with what uh, I like to call the sacred energies of the universe, and trying to, you know, how how would you teach that, and how would you get that into a curriculum? What it would what it would look like, and what kind of pedagogical methods would be necessary to to do that? So, I have finished a draft of a book that I've called Renewing the Sacred, and I'm busy editing it now, and hopefully I can put it out at least as an ebook or something like that pretty soon um, off my blog. So, if anybody's listening who know who reads the blog, look for it. it should should come out pretty soon. But I love doing that. I really do. I love love the writing process and just the magic that happens when an idea clicks in, into place that you've been looking for. And if you're working on it in a creative manner, you you wake up coming out of the sleep or something, and a, a new idea will kind of come out of that unconscious or subconscious area of our intelligence. And will be the solution to an idea or will be a perspective or a slant on something that you hadn't thought of on your own. You wake up and go to the computer and start, you know, oh, this is great stuff, you know, start getting it down. I, I, I really love that feeling. So uh, the creative process is quite enthralling to me. I love it.
0: <laughs> it's good when one finds their passion. It
1: really
0: is. You mentioned uh, the magazine Baha'i World. Can you tell people what that is?
1: Well, it's a it's something that's put out. Um, it's, it's not a magazine. It's, it's it's a yearbook kind of a thing put out by the Bahai World Center in in Haifa. I was privileged enough to have a friend ask me to collaborate. This would be oh, 1998, 99, I think is the, is the year. But um, I had an article published. We had a, we published one of the articles in there mm-hmm. um, on dimensions of unity. She was a, a very brilliant scholar by the name of Martha Schweiz. We looked at dimensions of unity, you know, we, Baha'is, we hear this and we throw this term around a lot and it really has to achieve a practical part of, a a part of our lives and be built into social institutions and into laws and into patterns of behavior. So we tried, we tried to to look at that. Another article that I had published was called, in in a book, an anthology called Scripture and Revelation and I looked at just Central metaphors of transformation
2: in the Bible,
1: coming out of the, the story of uh, Adam and Eve, and then going to the Tower of Babel, and then seeing these as being reenacted in the later development and the dispensation of the Baha'i. That these these are spiritual kind of um, turning points in every every dispensation, and they get reenacted. So. The other things have been mostly just just on education, but the Baha'i world one was just on the, what we call dimensions of unity, social dimensions, a political dimension, obviously. And She has a background in, in non-governmental organizations, so she looked at how they are working also to incorporate these same dimensions of unity as, as the Baha'i community is, and how they are doing it and how the Baha'i community is doing it. and We complemented each other, really well. She was also a fellow pioneer with us in, in Japan for several years.
0: Tell me about these Baha'i reenactments of biblical stories like Adam and Eve and the Tower of Babel. Can you uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, the, the perspective that I took was that basically the, the royal metaphor of transformation is you, you start out in a state of unity at some point, either as a young child, newly emerged from the womb, basically. You know the world is you're pretty much you. Um, you know you're not even aware of it. It's just this unity that you're in, and it's unconscious. And then the dawning of consciousness is actually the the breaking of that unity into a into its various parts. Because all consciousness is, is division. You have to be conscious of something. Even even self consciousness is, is breaking yourself, is dividing yourself so that you can you can be conscious. And then this process of the development of consciousness becomes more and more complex until basically you reach the end of development in which case what happens very often is that uh, what i call an apocalypse occurs now apocalypse is the same word as revelation the one part of it is of course this kind of mass destruction that we associate with the word apocalypse but that that is the basically the opening through Which you can see the new world, which is you know, then revealed the revelation coming into the world is actually what's causing the breaking down of, a, of the former world,
3: so you get you get
1: reunited, so that when for example, Adam and Eve are thrown out of the Garden of Eden because they ate of the tree of good and evil, uh, this was actually you know the breaking of the unity, the finding of, of all this knowledge that, that we have found, and then you know We've come to the point where one world view has kind of reached its full development. And if we're going to continue to progress, we have to adopt another view. So the Baha'i, I I felt that this was from the Baha'i community, uh, the Baha'i revelation. And then um, a reenactment, for example, in the Tower of Babel. The the word, the the Hebrew word Babel, it means the gate of God. And so the Bab who was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah in in Baha'i theology, is, that's his title, the Gate of God. So the came, same kind of reenactment of Babel, the, the, the diffusion of tongues and the, being able to communicate with each other and the building of the tower actually into heaven is going the wrong way. The real heaven is, is inward. So all this confusion that are surrounded the Bobby community after the death of the Bob seemed to me to be that same kind of activity that was going on, confusion, and, you know, the assertion of certain rights by people who were not not clear um, in, in, their, in their spiritual authority, and then the coming of Baha'u'llah, which, which reunited it. That was thumbnail sketch of the kind of things that I was talking about. So I felt that this was a return to that same stage as as a way of wrapping up the whole, what Baha'is call the the Adamic cycle, which was starting with Adam and then the progression of uh, great spiritual luminaries, Adam and Muhammad and Abraham, Noah, Baha'u'llah, Christ, Moses, all of these progressively unfolding the true meaning of of religion out of this
3: great well of
1: spiritual power that God has given to, to the world and to the human soul. But that reaches certain points of full development. And then at that point, a new kind of dynamic has to take over. It's, it's true in our own personal lives, too. Abdu'l uh, um, Baha'u, who is the son of Baha'u'llah, speaks very eloquently of the human body growing to maturity. And at maturity, of course, it's reached its full development. And literally, it, it begins to die at that point, to disintegrate. And it may take three or four or more decades, you know, to do that. But essentially, the life force of growth is over. But he says at that point, this material vessel of the human body is now capable of expressing the spiritual powers that are, are latent within the human soul. And we see this, I think, also with civilization. We have reached a point of the full development of a certain form, the material form of civilization. And if we are to progress further as a species of humanity, now we have to, as the human individual does, we have to get involved in our spiritual dimension of existence, but we have the fully developed material vessel in which those energies can be expressed. That kind of analogy-making is what I was doing in that article.
0: And I invite our listeners who want to get more familiar with the Bob and the Babi faith and its relationship with the Baha'i faith can probably find that information in Wikipedia if they right. look up Bob, B A B, which, as you said, is the Arabic word for the gate. You also mentioned an organization called the Association of Baha'i Studies. Right. Could you elaborate on what that association is?
1: Well, they are um, a association of uh, Baha'i scholars and academics and just really interested people. You don't have to be in a university or connected with a formal uh, higher learning institution to be part of it. It's open to anybody. But they really explore in a lot of different ways and through a lot of different methodologies internal meanings to the Baha'i revelation um, and connections between science now and the Baha'i faith, education. You know, There's no topic that's out of bounds, basically, to explore as, as a way of creating... You know these commonalities that we're all that we're all finding in in the world between science and religion, between education and, and spirit. I don't believe you even have to be a Baha'i to be a, a member of the Association for Baha'i Studies, but it's fundamentally you know built around this core of the Baha'i teachings, how science has related to it. You know, historical studies, sociological studies. Very, very, very wonderful things come out of this group. Um, they publish their journals regularly. I've been privileged to have a couple of my things published in there. They have regional conferences and then I think there's, there's often a, a national conference or at least a North American conference once a year. There's conferences in, in Australia and Europe and we used to have one in Japan. So it's a worldwide group of scholars who are you know, trying to find out sort of the meanings of the Baha'i revelation and Relationship with the world,
0: and you touched on this in your work in Japan with your school, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the spiritual model of education and this concept of a sacred, sacred energies of the universe, and this concept of renewing the sacred.
1: Right. Yes, our school in Japan, we well, we went from actually kindergarten up through high school, even though we didn't have a lot of students, and lot of different languages also, you know, kids coming from Mexico or Bangladesh or something you know, the common language had to be English if it wasn't Japanese. So, but basically the, the theory was that the human soul is, is what really needs to be educated and how, how do we do that? How do we, how do we get a spiritual education? It's my personal feeling that in the evolution of education, the first education was basically a, a material or physical education. We can see kind of the end of that as the primary force of education with the developments of Egyptian and, and Greek civilization in three or four thousand BC up and in, in the Greeks were several hundred BC, when an intellectual and mental kind of, of rational inquiry into the world, into the universe into, into human beings really began to, to, to come up and you know has since spread and, and reached the the full extent of the world, where we have science, we have art, we have rational inquiry according to a systematic investigation of the world. But this has, I think, reached now its final development as a form of education. Now we can go into a spiritual education, which is the next level. We don't lose science and we don't lose rational inquiry. We don't lose our mental faculties and our physical development by going to these higher things, it's all incorporated into into a spiritual education. So what that means for education then is how do we best nourish and strengthen the body? How do we best nourish and strengthen the mind? And how do we understand what's our understanding of this entity called the soul or the spirit and what by what laws does it function? How is it nourished? Things like, you know, reading the, the creative word, what is called the creative word, which is the words of Baha'u'llah and the Bab, the messengers of God, because they are addressed to that spiritual entity. And as we need food to, to strengthen our body and as, as we need study to strengthen our mind, we also need prayer, we need consultation, we need meditation on these these deeper questions in order to empower the spirit. So in our school in Japan, what we would do was we would incorporate uh, a physical, a mental, and a spiritual component into the study, into the activity of the students. So all the students, for example, would be required to to help with lunch, prepare lunch, and it would be based on what down nutritional principles that we had. So things that were not nutritious didn't find their way into our our school kitchen. Uh, We also had a garden they were responsible also for cleaning the school and, you know, getting involved in those kinds of physical activities. And then uh, mentally, of course, we have the usual sciences and arts, math, and English, and Japanese, and biology, and, and all of the, the usual sciences, but as, as an investigation into nature, and investigation into themselves, and to develop their, their logical and mental power. But then we also had times for, for meditation at times, for, for prayer and for group consultation to solve problems, so that all the aspects, all the three aspects of it, the full human being, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual, would receive some nourishment each day. We would engage in larger social acts of service. For example, we had our, our school, was, as, I said, mentioned, as I mentioned, was in this big nature preserve. So, and it had a big open field, so we would bring kids in from the larger community to have once a month kind of a fair at the school. We worked very closely with the local mayor and his office to give a different aspect and a different dimension to education. It was, you know, kind of not quite made it up as we went along, but we tried to take advantage of every opportunity to expand our consciousness and expand our social context that, that was available in our activity. And from that, of course, um, we learned a lot. It was a very thematic school. So I'll just give you one example of the kinds of things we, we would do. We would set out a theme. For one term, the theme was
2: the, the human
1: body. That was So everything was kind of geared around studying the human body, the mathematics of growth and what people do together to, to nourish each other. And then we would just metaphorically extend that. So I had a class of just basically eight and nine year olds and we wanted to study and we wanted to study earth science. That was part of it. But in relationship to the human body, you know, how how are they alike? So these little eight and nine year olds they, they started kind of rifting on this on this nice little metaphor of the human body, and they said, well, the rocks are like the bones, and the water networks is is like the blood, and the animals are like the muscles. And it was, you know, they were generating this all by themselves, the late manual, just taking one thing and metaphorically applying it to something else to start generating their own knowledge and their own understanding about it. And it was quite, quite a magnificent thing to...
2: And it's quite a, you
1: know, happy thing for a teacher to see children generating their own awareness of the world and expanding their own consciousness of it. That's what I mean by, by spiritual education. Not just, you know, learning about God and learning about prayer and learning about the do's and don'ts of a abstract moral you know, laws and principles. It's that kind of empowerment where people are taking over ownership of their own learning and applying what they know to, to novel situations generate their own greater understanding. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with this book that I've just finished the draft of, Renewing the Sacred, of applying it in a way that will look at the different aspects of education, curriculum, teaching methodology, the purpose of education, what's, what's it there for, really, because education really means, the word means to bring forth. So education then for me is not something you receive, it's something that comes out of you. Uh, it's what you give, is, is what your education is, it's not what primes that pump of, of what is learning. You can receive learning, you can receive instruction, but education technically is what you uh, bring out of yourself in response to that. So it's built on that kind of a metaphor and people who have been reading the blog will will know that you know, that's... That's a, a very often recurring message uh, to just remind people what what real education is, is, is what you are giving of yourself, not what you're taking in.
0: So tell me more about your blog, Bill.
1: Well, I started the blog in December. My, my oldest daughter's I guess she just got fed up with me talking to, just to her about all this stuff. <laughs> she said, Dad, you should write a blog. So um, I did. The blog is www joyfuled.blogspot.com. And I have used it as kind of a way to explore a lot of the ideas, and a lot of it has come from the book, but a lot of it is different from the book too as I come up with new, new topics. And it's really a way of exploring this idea of what I've been exploring for now 30 years, this idea of what is a spiritual education. We know what physical education is we know what we need to do to have strong bodies. We basically know that, you know, you need to lot eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, you need to drink plenty of water, you need to get at least a moderate amount of exercise, good air if you can, and, you know, cut back on the sugars, you know, don't do we know those kinds of basic general principles of good physical health. We also know how to train the mind scientifically and artistically through language, through the, through the use of number. Um, and by and large, education, secular or otherwise, does a pretty adequate job in those two types of education. But what we're missing is this spiritual component, this you know getting the, the qualities and the, the powers of the soul out and getting them expressed. And in order to do that, we have to understand something of a spiritual dimension to the whole cosmos, and that dimension is, for me, brought into the world in, in a form that we can understand through these great teachers, these great spiritual luminaries who have brought these messages from God, as Baha'is believe, which tell us and about the spiritual dimension, which are kind of give us the, the maps of finding our way around in that invisible world and bring forth from us these noble behaviors that... Uh, the great saints and everybody else, and the ordinary saints also, the daily saints. These these noble aspirations of the of the human being come from that dimension. And an educational system that tells us how to do that is, I think, something that that we that we are really in need of. And it really has to be a whole kind of holistic education. We just can't kind of tack it on to the end of the school day and say, okay. Call it, you know, moral education class or character development classes, because that's that's going to create a real dissonance. Because, you know, for example, in history, our history textbooks, by and large, present just the various forms of exploitation and, and war and you know, disunity that the world has come. And you know, you get enough of that kind of osmotically, you know, imbibed, and that's the way you start looking at the world. And so then you go into the moral education class. And they say, let's all be peaceful. And it, it doesn't really wash. So what are the principles? What are, what are the laws and the needs to create a peaceful society, to create an inner peace? This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about getting you know, into the spiritual dimension and drawing on those sacred energies. There's a very wonderful book called The Idea of the Holy um, by a, a German uh, theologian about 100 years ago. And he's talking about something that he, he labeled the, the numinous consciousness, which I would call the spiritual intelligence. But he says this consciousness has to be fed from above. It's not something that we can generate out of ourselves. It's not something that we can learn from nature. Although we can get intimations of it and we can see analogies of it, but the real the real power of that comes from some you know greater force than we are and a greater intelligence that we can ever get, who has to Kind of show us how to navigate, how to get around, how to be comfortable, and and to live um, within this this spiritual world. There is this dimension to the world that we're really discovering. Science is discovering some of the, some of the even the quantum mechanics of uh, come out in the last century. or So, is beginning to understand that you know the, the universe is more than just what we can. See, it's more than what we can feel. It's more than what we can measure. There seems to be, you know, an intelligence behind it, and there seems to be dimensions to it that were unknown a hundred or even seventy-five years ago. And these dimensions have laws that operate according to different ways of thinking, and they have to be explored scientifically and understood. And we're seeing an efflorescence of a, of a lot of this kind of. Investigation into
3: spiritual
1: things or into the relationship between mind and matter and new laws and new principles and well, the power of intention and the power of visualization. All of these I think are kind of embryonic spiritual sciences that will grow into new ways of looking at the world and being able to generate knowledge that will bring us peace and prosperity that, that we're all really looking for. It's just not going to happen because we want it. It's just not going to happen on a kind of a, an emotional. Let's all love each other. There are real laws and principles that we can apply to to create the world that I think we all really want.
0: I want to thank you for sharing your story and your perspective with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bill Barnes, an educator who writes about integrating the spiritual into education. His blog is Joyful Ed, which can be found at joyfuled.blogspot.com. I'll post his link on my website, www.abahaiperspective.com, along with his interview. You can also browse through the archives of interviews on the website. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
2: Who make me one of them The pressure never ends Oh God Oh
4: God Guide me Protect me Make of me
2: Cause it's in my own hands to shape my own fate But I feel like I'm lost when the teacher try to teach me Preacher try to preach me, but only you can reach me I know you're always there, I know you've always cared Cause I can feel that there is hope, but my vision is impaired By the clouds that have found me, as darkness surrounds me Oh God, guide me
4: Oh God, guide me, protect me me, protect me.
5: And the dove of peace will fly with two wings.